So good to be with you this morning as we hear God's word. This morning we'll take a look particularly at that word from James chapter 2 verses 1 through 17 or so. If you want to have your own Bibles open as we hear that word, I encourage you. It's good things to have our own scriptures open as we hear God's word. Again, let's uh, enjoy that word together. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus. Amen. I was talking with some other people, as I'm sure a number of you have been lately, and we were, we were talking about the new proposed capital gains tax increase. I was overhearing them, them talk about the proposed capital gains tax increase. If you haven't seen it, uh, basically the proposal is to raise the base rate of the capital gains tax by about 10%. Uh, and depending on where, you know, on how much capital gains you have and everything else, you'll have a, see a bigger or a smaller per percentage increase. But it's about 10%. And what I was shocked at as we talked about this is just how angry everybody was. You know, nobody likes taxes, right? Who likes taxes? I mean, I've never filled out my 1040 and said, yay, this is the best day. Actually, I'm, I do because I'm done. But other than that, right? It doesn't make me happy. Uh, but they were so angry, you know? And, and I've had other conversations uh, about that. So people who are so upset about the financial situation going on. People, for example, saying, oh man, the unemployment assistance, it's just, it's so bad. Nobody wants to work. People need to get back to work. And this unemployment assistance is just messing everything up. And then I'm getting the other side of the conversation from, from plenty of, of people as well. You know, people who are saying we need to raise the minimum wage because the minimum wage just doesn't pay enough. It's, it's not even hardly a livable wage anymore. Nobody can survive off of the, the salaries that most of these places are playing, paying. Uh, and then I have a number of, of good friends who have been searching for, for jobs for a long time, you know, and they just can't, there's no jobs. They're, they're, they're moving, they're taking crazy jobs just to try to get something, but businesses say they want to hire, but nobody's hiring, you know, and then we've got at the very end of the spectrum, you've got people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett saying, you know, tax the rich more. We should be paying more taxes. This is, this is the financial situation we're experiencing, huh? It's kind of a mess, isn't it? it it's quite confusing because you've, you've got people on both ends of the spectrum all over the place uh, saying competing and opposing viewpoints. And, and I, I compare that with, uh, with something that I heard about right after 9-11. Um, maybe you heard this story as well. There was a, a church in New York that was just a, a mile or so down from the towers where the towers fell. And, and a woman told this story of what happened at that church right after 9-11. She said that there was a, a number of people who called the church, and she didn't even work at the church at the time. She, she said, a number of people who started calling the church and saying, where can we send money? We want to send money. And, and the church said, we don't have any, we haven't asked for any money. We don't have a plan yet to use money. And they said, well, you better come up with a plan because we're sending money. And, and the church, over the next couple of days, right after 9-11, got over $2 million of unsolicited donations. They launched a program then. Within days, they, they made little cards. They went around and passed these little cards out. And the cards just said, did you get affected by the disaster? Call us. We'll, we want to help. And people came in and asked for, for money. And there, there were no strings attached. They weren't asked if they would come to church, they weren't made to, to hear a big, long pitch about how good the church was. They weren't told uh, or asked about their real financial need. They were just given the money. And this woman who, who received it, she said, man, it was, it was crazy. It was the first time 
I had ever really thought about being part of a church. And that's what God wants to show us today. You know, this, this new way that you and I can use our wallets. And it's not about how much money we give or anything else. God shows us today a new way, a new faith for our finances. And so I want to get that with you as we look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2 here. Maybe you want to uh, follow along with me today as we hear of mercy and money. Mercy and money, that's what I want to talk with us about. The first thing here is about money. First thing is to say, realize that God wants more than just economic equality from us. God wants more than just economic equality. If you look at verse 1 in this lesson from James chapter 2, in James chapter 2 verse 1, God says, believers must not show favoritism. Believers should not show partiality. They should not show preference for people based on how they appear. And we need to realize right from the start how radical or how different this is from any kind of American ideal or American picture. Uh, America, basically, we have, we have two arguments going on right now regarding economics and equality, don't we? Uh, on one side, there are people who argue for equality of opportunity. Equality of opportunity. And equality of opportunity is basically defined as, as far as advancement, economic advancement and opportunity goes, jobs and such things, there should be no arbitrary rules that prohibit some people from uh, getting a job and other people from not getting a job. Right? And so here's, here's how equality of opportunity looks. Right? Equality of opportunity looks like this. I, I take my, my, uh, my, my, my money here, right? and I say, all right, I got a little more than 20 bucks here. It's first come, first serve, and whoever can survive getting out of the church with it gets to keep it. Good luck, right? That's equality of opportunity. You've all got the opportunity to take my money and try and get it. Of course, if I take it, then you can't have it. But that's equality of opportunity. You all have the same opportunity. The other argument has gone in, in America, right? The other point that people operate or advocate for is, is equality of outcome. Equality of outcome says... We should all have basically more or less, right, the, the same kind of living arrangements, the same kind of position in life, more or less. And so I got, I got 10 bucks. There's about 50 of you here. What does that mean? Each one of you gets 25 cents. 25 cents. Go buy yourself a gumball, right? Good luck. That's, that's equality of opportunity. Now, James, he counters that, doesn't he? And what does James say? James says, believers must not show favoritism. What God wants is so much more. God wants from us is, I think we can call it economic impartiality. That's what I wrote down there for us. Economic impartiality. When, when James uses this word favoritism, the word favoritism refers to your face. And James says, don't pay attention to people's faces when you behave. James says, you've got rich people, you've got poor people. And you need to find a way to behave, to treat them both the same. Now, how does that work? Well, you got 10 bucks. You got 10 bucks, right? And so what are you going to do with it? What if I don't want to show favoritism? Well, I don't give 10 bucks to the rich guy so that he likes me more. And I don't give 10 bucks to the poor guy so that he goes away. But maybe I find a way to treat them, to behave toward them both the same. And you can see, I think already, you can think already, and I do, just how hard this is. 
I confess this and this challenge all the time. Maybe you do too. I frequently find that I, I'm eating breakfast or I'm having a cup of coffee with somebody in the morning who has money. And I, you know, I know they have money. And we have a nice conversation. And then by lunch, somebody calls. They're in need. They need gas. They need food for something. And my heart pours out with compassion for them. And I say to myself, why didn't I treat the rich guy with the same compassion? Do you see this? Right? James is saying you have to be able to treat them both the same. Where's your impartiality? Why does the poor guy get your compassion? Just because he's poor? You know, this is so much harder than it looks, right? As Americans, we might think equality, impartiality, economic impartiality, it looks like, well, let's, let's, uh, let's not charge more taxes for the rich than we do for the poor, or let's make sure that everybody has the same tax burden. But, you know, that, that doesn't really cut at the heart of the matter, does it? There was a really cutting example that I was reading about and listening to the other day. It was from a senior gentleman. His name was Kelvin Miller. And he grew up in very serious poverty during, during the Great Depression. He and his family received a lot of charity over those years, and they were, but they were very sensitive to, uh, to their poverty. They were sensitive to the ulterior motives that people had. They said... They never really thought about how poor they were until it came time for the Christmas charity baskets. Every Christmas at around, at around Christmas time, the, the wealthier churches in town would put together charity baskets and they would go to the house and, and they would drop it off. And he said they would, they would try to win them to the Lord. They meant well. He said they were just trying to keep us out of hell until the next holiday season. He said the children in the family never wanted to go to those churches. They never wanted to go to the churches that brought the baskets. The last place that you feel right you want to go to worship in is the place where the people need you to be poor so that they can feel better about themselves. You know, this idea of, of economic impartiality is so hard. They, they thought, they kind of acted like they were playing favorites just to feel rich. And God really challenges us in our hearts to say, can you behave in the same way to everybody? That's the first thing that God wants to say. And that's why it's so surprising then when he goes on and he says this second thing. It's so surprising because he goes on and he says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? Has not God chosen the poor? How can he say that? Didn't he just say, be impartial? Be impartial? But then he goes right on to say, God has chosen the poor. What does that mean? And maybe at first glance you think it means that God has somehow chosen the poor to be saved and he's ignored the rich. But that's not, that's not what I think this means. This is simply historical reality. In another place, the Apostle Paul in, in Corinthians, he writes, tell me about many of you when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were sophisticated. Not many of you were from noble birth. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What was he saying? He was saying most of the people in the first Corinthian church came from the lower socioeconomic stats, class. That's just the historical reality. They came from that historical that class. 
And, and tell me, doesn't the same thing ring true for you and I? That the gospel rings out somehow in a, in a better way for, for the poor? I, I have to say, where do I have most of my gospel conversations? Is it with people who have a nice house and a nice boat and everything is good in their life? Or, or is it with the people, the, the man who is all alone in the nursing home? There's nothing left. Is it with the woman who has just lost her car and her job? Where do you have the conversations? This is the, this is the reality God is saying of, of the gospel, that God chooses the poor. Somehow the gospel rings out in a special way for them. And he tells us, this is the third thing he wants to show us today. What lets him, that happen? What makes that happen? How can God say he chooses the poor? He puts it in the last little bit here. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now this is, I found this to be really challenging. How does this work with God choosing the poor? And maybe you, you, you wonder too. But I, I heard an example that really struck me this week. I was listening to Rachel Den Hollander's testimony uh, about Larry Nasser this week. We're listening to it. And, and just to refresh our memories in case that story doesn't ring a bell again, Larry Nasser was the doctor from Michigan State University who was the doctor for uh, the United States Olympic team. And so that was kind of a big story about oh, 10, 5, 10 years ago as, as the stories of, of his abuse came out. And Rachel Den Hollander was the a gymnast on the Olympic team who was the first to, to talk about what he had done. And Rachel Den Hollander, she reported uh, at Larry's trial, and she said this. She said, You're, you spoke of praying for forgiveness, Larry. But Larry, if you've read the Bible that you carry, you know that forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. So Larry, stop taking advantage of grace. You know, if you know the Bible, that you cannot get in good with God by your good things. And she goes on and she says, The Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and his terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. She points out something, doesn't she? James says that mercy triumphs over judgment. But mercy only triumphs over judgment for you and I because judgment triumphed over somebody else. The harshest judgment in the world has been poured out on Jesus Christ, on one man. There was no mercy from the lashes of the whip. There was no mercy from his accusations. There was no mercy from the cross. There was no mercy from the mocking of the people who passed by. There was no mercy from the hand of God 
that pressed the weight of the world's sin on him. There was no mercy from the flames of hell that came after him. There was no mercy from the terror and the horror of the isolation that we would endure for all of that sin. There was no mercy for him. And the only way that you and I get to take, experience that mercy, that mercy that has been won on the cross, that mercy that escapes us from judgment, is if we hide in his judgment. That's the only place that we can find safety. God has, has poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ so that you and I, even as we fail to be impartial, we, we pass judgment on so many people around us, we can take safety and refuge in Christ. And the more you see that the judgment has been poured out on him, the more you will be able to find safety beneath him. And then then you will be able to live with economic impartiality. That's what impartiality means. It means that we, we don't judge. Which means that somebody else has to carry the judgment. And to the extent that you let Christ carry the judgment for your each and every sin, you can find safety from judgment with him. So bring your wallets. Let's bring your wallets to do good. Let me give you a, maybe a test that we can all try this week. I'm interested to see how it works. James says, let's not show favoritism. And so I want to encourage, I want to, want to challenge you all. Maybe there's a test that we can take. See how it goes. See how it, it, it and this is not about what you, you could do for other people, how it feels for you. Take some amount of money this week. Let's say you take uh, six bucks and, and you split it up. So you got $2, $2, $2. And give $2 to a person who is not well off. Give $2 to a person who is, you know, okay, right? Middle class, so to speak. And $2 to a person who is well off. And see if you can do it with impartiality. And see what happens. See what happens. See if you can do it and treat them all the same. Because that's how mercy shows up in our money. It's with impartiality. That's how we bring our wallets. Let's pray for that. Dear Lord, thank you for the chance today to hear of your grace, the mercy that you have won on the cross so that we can avoid the judgment of God, the judgment that God would bring on us rightly for our sin and all of our, our preferences, all of our favoritism, all of our partiality. Bring that mercy upon us and set us free from our sins, Lord Jesus, for the sake of his name. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.